This morning, we're not going to do, um, I don't think, uh, we'll see where God takes us. I don't think we're going to do a cannonball off into the deep end, but I think we're going to touch our toes in the water. And we are, uh, this morning beginning and over the next uh, six weeks, we're going to look at, I think, what is one of um, life's, we're going to answer one of life's uh, most difficult questions by looking at one of the most famous people uh, in the history of the world. Uh, this man um, truly is famous. They've made major motion pictures of him, his depiction, or they have had a rendering of him on the cover of Time magazine. The great Martin Luther King Jr. peppered his preaching, his writing, his sermons uh, with this man. You can make a good case that outside of the person of Jesus Christ, this is the most famous person uh, in the history of the world. Th three of the major world religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, uh, both testify, all testify, that this man uh, brought to them uh, their, their, their terms of their morality, their divinely uh, ordained morality code. Of course, I speak of the man Moses. And the question we're going to ask uh, this morning and over the next several weeks is, where is God? Moses, I think, though famous, is very relatable. I hope over the next several weeks you learn about him. And I hope that uh, you're in a small group if you're studying this. And you, you look on our website or our small group questions, you'll see a recommended resource to follow along, to go deeper in this series. And I hope that some of you will do that. Moses was the man, but I think we're able to relate to him. And over these weeks, we're going to ask some questions like, where is God when you're wounded? Where is God when you feel trapped or stuck? Where is God when you're in a, a desert season? This morning, we're going to ask a question, where is God when I'm waiting? And though Moses, um, I've extolled him for his fame, uh, I will say that we can appreciate how relatable he was. Moses was a man who lost his temper. He felt limited. He felt disqualified. He felt like he had fallen behind, that he wasn't usable in God's hands. He was wounded by his own past and wondering if he could truly be an overcomer. He was overcome by stress in high-pressure situations. Moses had a difficult marriage. And I think as we're going to walk through this, we'll see a man that, that we all can say, I can relate. I can relate to this guy. I want you, if you will, to turn to the book of Exodus. In a moment, we're going to put up a couple of passages. We're going to look at several, Exodus 1, um, chapter 1, chapter 2. We're not going to put those verses up yet. We'll be looking at them uh, in just a minute. Now, this morning, as we answer the question, where is God when I wait? I want to say this. You get it, right? If it's true, just let out a moan when I say this. But our first point is this. We hate to wait. right? Just moan. Don't say amen. Just let out some type of growth. Don't, don't you hate to wait? Have you ever listened to a sermon and you're there, especially balcony people, and you're thinking, this sermon, it just goes on and on and on. And you start to think, it's never going to finish. Ever experienced that? Amen. Just wait. You call because there's something wrong, and you call, and you were told on the phone that a customer service representative will be with you shortly. You're at Disney World because it's fun, not because it's expensive, because you're going to force your family to have fun, and you wait in a very long line, and they're going to manage your expectations with multiple signs as you wait, and there's a sign that says three days before you can get on the Jungle Cruise. 
Something ails you. You're worried about something. You've got something physically wrong with you and you need a doctor. The doctor's not going to greet you right when you walk in the door. Receptionist does that, but you'll have to spend time, a lot of time in what? In the waiting room. You see, we hate to wait. But you know, we have to wait. Not long ago, I remember being on a flight. It was going into the to the Bay Area of California. I couldn't wait to go see um, this city, this area for the first time. And I just wanted to take it all in. I didn't have much time. But as our flight was uh, approaching, we were told that we were going to make our way. We were going to circle the airport. And man, did we circle the airport. I was getting a great view of a, like Lake Tahoe and Oregon and, you know, just a, a great view of the whole area, just round and around. And it occurred to me, man, I am not in control. You ever, somebody ever tell you, hey, have a, have a safe flight? That's so futile, isn't it? Oh, okay. All right. I will. Right? I'm, I'm just sitting there. You're just sitting there on a flight, right? I mean, we're trusting, we're trusting some folks, right? And, and there's a pilot, and you're not the co-pilot. And I was reminded that maybe that pilot's got a co-pilot. I hope they have high competence and good character, right? But we just circled. I hope we had enough fuel. But it was reminded that I am not in control. I had to wait. And we hate to wait, but we have to wait. It's 2 a.m. Your teenager has a curfew of 11 p.m. No call, no contact. You have to wait. You're the maid of honor at your little sister's wedding. She's seven years younger than you. It's not, not how you had it drawn up, but apparently you have to wait. Today, no doubt, you're here and you're waiting on someone to change. Maybe you're waiting on someone to love you or someone to forgive you. You're wishing that circumstances could be better, that situations could be different. Maybe this morning you're waiting on God to prove to you that he's real. We hate to wait. But we have to wait. And the trouble is, for us in life, that we want now, but we live in a world of not yet. And this is the very thing, no matter what it is in your life, this is the very reality that separates us. That, I mean, just in a raw way hits us. Of if or how we pursue God. Not the stuff you say to people at church or small group or in the community, but what you really, really think, what you're really feeling. We want now, but we live in a world of not yet. And what I've learned as I study this week is there's a perspective and there's a pattern in Scripture that God gives us for waiting. And I don't know many instances where God says, a week from tomorrow. Hey, hey, I hear you. I hear your cry. I hear your groaning. One more year from today. Right? A month from Monday, a week from Wednesday. I, I can't think of many, I'll say it, I can't think of any examples where that's the pattern or the perspective of Scripture. And we're in this land we want now, but we live in a world of not yet. And it can be a crushing burden. And this morning I want us to learn a little bit, a little bit from Moses, maybe more from the people of Israel. Exodus chapter 1, before, before you, you did it, you looked down, sorry. Uh, before we uh, look down and look at a few verses, I want to tell you that this is the people of Israel before they even knew about a man named Moses 
the deliverer. This was before the exodus. This was before the parting of the Red Sea. Before they were guided by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Before they knew about the manna in heaven. And this is a point where it begins with some very disturbing images. A whole bunch of you like me have seen American Sniper this week, right? And you knew when you were going to the theater, you were probably going to get some disturbing images. And what you have here are some disturbing images of the people of Israel being driven into forced labor and oppression. They were beaten. They were treated inhumanely. But what we have is a few things. First of all, despite all this, we see what I would call a beautiful beginning. We see Jacob, who has a son. Giving you some context before we get into it. Jacob has a son. His name is, do you know, Joseph. And this is uh, John Maxwell. Where are you at? This is the Joseph with the coat of many colors. That Joseph. And Joseph is sold into slavery, but in, into Egypt, into the country of Egypt. But he rises to the top, and he becomes uh, one of the. Uh, he becomes actually the second-ranking government official in that land, and he is a a great man, a great leader. He's got that that natural God-given thing. And he helps people overcome a famine in the land. And the people, all the people are very grateful for Joseph. And he's promoted and the people come to him and they say, you can get the finest piece of land in all the nation. And Joseph accepts their offer and he moves his family to a land uh, that the Bible calls Goshen. And there he is, a beautiful beginning, and they have a wonderful living. They have babies, and their descendants become wealthy, and they acquire more land. And the babies have lots of babies, and those lots of babies, they have babies who have lots of babies. And things are really good. But amidst this great beginning, with this wonderful living, there comes a brutal awakening. A new king is installed, a pharaoh, who is growing fearful that the Israelites are growing too numerous and too dangerous and look at, look at this passage, Exodus chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. 11 through 14, I'm sorry. Therefore they set task, taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they how they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Remember the topography. Remember the climate. This is uh, desert land. So all the more exacerbated. Pretty bad, huh? It, it gets even worse. The Pharaoh's fear of them growing more numerous and more dangerous, he does what? He installs genocide. Verse 22, the same chapter. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The brutal awakening. It gets worse, and it gets worse. You see, God had promised these folks The promised land. A land that we know was promised to be flowing with milk and honey. And now it seemed like this God who was leading them was nowhere to be found. Years and years of silence. 
Let's see how you do this morning. See if some of you are still awake. When you're waiting, you're in a season where you're really having to wake. There is a question that just rises up in you. You may ask it to others. If you're blaming somebody for your season of waiting, you're going to ask them. Or maybe you're going to cry out to God. And what I love about the Christian tradition is there are prayers of complaint. Do you know this? Prayers of complaint. Not denying evil and suffering and waiting, but prayers that really were men and women really put it before God. He's big enough. I say it often, but he's big enough for our prayers of complaint. What is that question when you're waiting? What do you say? How long? I heard why. That's a good one. I'm going to go with how long because I think my wife said that. (laughs) Always go with your wife. It's really good for domestic tranquility. How long? The Israelites were asking this question, how long? And invariably, that question is wedded with another one, which is really important because it gets immensely practical. And that question is, how can I handle this? How long and how can I handle this? And this morning, I want to talk about your life and mine today in the world in which we live. Moving forward from 1300 B.C. in Egypt to maybe where we are. Uh, Probably nobody in this room has known slavery or genocide. But I bet you've been in that season of waiting and crying out to God. And then what happens? You have to wait more. How long? Note takers, if you're in a small group, you'll see it this week in your small group study guide. But Psalm 13 is a great passage to read. Psalm 13, David asked that very question. How long? How long, O Lord? And that's what these people were asking. But how can you handle it? There are, I would say, that the, the answer to this question depends on your view. It depends on your view of the world. Okay? What some of you studied, I certainly have. But just what is your worldview? What is your worldview? Now, let me say this. Everybody's, everybody's got one. I just saw some Bellhaven students shaking their heads. I'm going to break it. I'm going to be real simple. I'm going to be real overarching here. But I want to give you this morning three overarching worldviews. The first is materialism. This, this says that you and I, well, we're a cosmic accident. This is a, kind of a, an ism or an idea in life that human beings are the highest plane intellectually in the universe. A materialist denies existence of God. A materialist like all of us gets up in the morning, their feet hit the floor, they probably sometime before 8 a.m. or 9 get a cup of coffee or they get a headache and they uh, check the news, they look at Good Morning America or Bad Morning America, whatever it is that day, and they head off to work and they live their lives. They do a little bit of work but mostly just stay on social media at the office and they hang out and they've got things to do. They've got some activity after work and they've got to do their thing and they, they think little to nothing about the idea of God. This is someone who says, I'm securely trusting in myself. Now, how does that work? The strategy of just trusting in yourself. Uh, I know a, a family, a mom, who was busy on the phone in the living room, and she had both of her children on the floor, pretty much at her feet, or at least close by. A, a four-year-old daughter, Ariana, and a little three-month-old baby boy named Nathan. And she was working the phone, and they had clear instructions to be right there. And this, um, this little girl, Ariana, she was loving her little brother, just learning to love him gently like a mother. 
And the mom was on the phone tackling business. And lo and behold, she looks up, turns around, and they're both gone. Four-year-old girl, three-month-old boy. Panic-stricken, she hangs up the phone and she goes to look for them. And it just took her about 30 seconds. But that's if you're a parent, you've been there, you know that feeling of like, oh my gosh, where are they? And she says to that little girl, Ariana, I told you not to move your brother. How did he get back here? I told you not to carry him. You could fall and you could hurt him. She said, I didn't carry him. She said, how did he get back here? She, the little girl said, I rolled him. <laughs> and you know, there's situations in life where you're, the authority figure just seems busy. And a materialist ultimately says, hey, I'm going to take matters into my own hand. Though it be a little bit reckless, though it's not by the book, though it's not what mama and them tell me, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to roll things through life, and that's the materialist view. No room for God, for the transcendent. By the way, with materialism, as it is with atheism, they're wed closely together. But, but I've heard it said that it's some of us all the time, and all of us some of the time. You with me there? Some of us hold to this all the time. But for all of us, it's some of the time. So when you think, man, you've arrived spiritually, you've memorized a good portion of the Bible and your church attendance is this way and you've seen God do some things in your life, be very careful because all of us are pulled into a pragmatic materialism or atheism where we say, I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to say I believe in God, but I'm going to do everything my way and I'm not going to wait on Him. But that's materialism. Uh, Another Uh, worldview is what we call spiritualism. It's on the other end of the continuum of materialism. Materialism says emphatically there is no God. Spiritualism says there is a God. God is everywhere. God is in you. God is in me. God is all around us. This is Eastern mysticism. It's new age. It's karma. You know, karma is, is big in Hollywood, big in Hindu religion. It's big in Flowood, I'm going to tell you. And you may be saying here, you may fold your arms and say, man, I don't, I don't believe in that karma stuff. But a lot of us do, you know. Have you found that to be true? I saw a post last night. Um, nothing funny here. Let's get serious for a second. But um, a woman posted her, her husband came home and grabbed the car, her car, some stuff. Took about 20 minutes and drove away and left her with the bills and the house and everything. And he's gone. And I saw people saying, we love you, we care for you. And I saw a bunch of people mention karma. Oh, don't worry, it's coming back to him, right? Now look, here's what I want to say to you. There's a little bit that's in line. I think there's something in you that wants to believe that, right? Especially when you've been done wrong. But it's, it's aligned at least in a temporal way. I'm going to try to be careful here, but in a temporal way, it's closely aligned with what the Scripture talks about reaping or sowing and reaping, right? You, you reap what you sow. If, if you sow... Seeds of generosity, you'll, you'll reap that. I mean, not, there's some good stuff about that. But, man, karma is in Hindu, Hollywood, Flowood. It's here. It's in this room. It's in our heart and ours. We want to see things come back around. But this uh, spirituality, this spiritualism is, is um, gaining more and more popular, 
becoming more popular in our culture. Materialists are, are, I think, waning in their popularity and influence. They've been given a really bad name by, by some of the angry atheists who've written some of these books over the last five to, to ten years. But it's popular with uh, Mississippi's very own Oprah Winfrey. It's popular with Deepak Chopra, which I've always said, if Oprah Winfrey marries Deepak Chopra, she would be Oprah Chopra. Wouldn't that be good? <laughs> but this idea that God is... He's everywhere, and it's aligned with an idea, married to this idea, that the universe is getting better. That there's something evolving in us. And if if you're waiting, if you're in a season of waiting right now, just hold on. It's only temporary. You'll be reincarnated and reincarnated and reincarnated 165,000 times, and then you'll be higher on the evolutionary plane, and things will be all good one day. But this... Spiritualism, popular today, is presented with a lot of problems. Namely, the world's not getting better. Namely, that you and I make really bad gods. Try to be a god. Try to be a god in your own life. Try to be a god in the lives of other people. Doesn't work well. Spiritualism says, hey, it's all going to work out. But there's a, there's a third idea, a third worldview, and that is biblical theism. This week, Larry Johnson and I were having breakfast at Broad Street, and someone interrupted us, which was fine with me. And they, this gentleman said, are you, are you Robert Green? I said, yes. He said, I, your pastor, yeah. He goes, I, I think it's cool what you're doing. And I said, having breakfast, no big deal. A lot of people do that. He said, no, I think it's cool. This Fondren Church, Woodland Hills, this coming together, these resources being shared, the, the future and everything. And we began to talk and he uh, gave himself a seat. And I said something about, have you visited with us? Or, you know, I'm a pastor, right? You got to promote sometime. I'm like, hey, we'd love to have you. And he goes, I wouldn't be a good church member. You see, I'm an atheist. He teaches nearby, and he began to share just a little bit of his story, pointing me to his website. We talked a little bit. And the conversation that I had with him that day reminded me of something I read not too long ago on the Internet that said philosophy is like being in a dark room looking for a black cat. Metaphysics is like being in a dark room looking for a black cat that's not there. Theology is like being in a dark room looking for a black cat that's not there, but you yell, I found it. (laughs) But science is like being in a dark room looking for a black cat with a flashlight. You see? So where he and I are different, we both had breakfast at Broad Street We both have a vertebrae and a central nervous system. We both love our community. We both want crime to be down and goodwill and charity and love to be up. We have a lot in common, which is a great way, by the way, as a Christ follower to live. But what he would purport to and what he's staking his life on is that science gives us the answer. And I said to him, man, I don't want to be that guy. Do you? I don't want to be a guy in a dark room looking for a black cat that's not there and telling people I found it. Do you? Man, 
Paul said if it's not true, if this biblical theism, if what Jesus uh, did is, is not true, if it's a fallacy, then we're preaching in vain and we're to be pitied among all men. Biblical theism, I believe it in the way, the, for the same reasons this man does not believe it. I believe it by, because I've looked I've looked at evidence, I've looked at prophecies, I've looked at manuscripts, I've looked at the person of Jesus, I've looked at the fruit of my own life. And can I say it, especially if you're a young person, there's a lot of really smart people who are biblical theists. And I've said it before to a bit of controversy, there's nothing about science that contradicts biblical faith. The Bible is not a science book, but when it speaks on science in a literal way, it is literally true. And I, I don't get defensive. I used to. I don't get defensive anymore because I don't think I found a black cat that's not there. I don't think I'm yelling to people that I found something that's not there. I think we've got water to thirsty, weary travelers. And I don't want to be the guy giving sand to the same people whose thirst is very, very real. So with biblical theism, we take it or leave it. But biblical theism, God through his word gives us a few promises. A few promises about waiting on him. The first is this. He sees those who hurt. Let's look at Exodus 2. Skip over if you would. Chapter 23. Or I'm sorry, chapter 2 verse 23. During those many days the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. One of the fundamental things that we believe about our faith, about what the Bible teaches, is even if at times it doesn't seem that way, that God sees. The New Testament would later say that nothing is hidden from his sight. Now, the materialist that I met at Broad Street that day has great trouble with the ontological, teleological, and cosmological arguments for the existence of God. And I have, it weighs heavy on me to talk to someone who's a materialist, an atheist, and talk to them about how God can be all good and all loving and there exists evil in the world. But biblical theism doesn't purport to explain the whys of evil. But I think it's the most rational, logical, and coherent system of belief in the world then, today, and forever about evil, sin, and suffering. And I believe that God sees. I believe that He sees you who are hurting. And can I say backing up a little bit with all the worldviews on that three-pronged list that I gave you? What Jesus said is true. The rain comes on the just and the unjust. Have you noticed that? I'm not a believer because I have less pain and less problems. Now, I do want to preach Proverbs and other passages that talk about wisdom because a lot of pain we bring on is just our stupidity. I mean, let me just real quick say it. There's, you're going through something right now, and don't pray a prayer of complaint. That's on you. You made some really foolish decisions, okay? So some of our pain and some of our problems, I'm not talking down to you, I'm with you. 
I've got plenty of stories myself, but it's some of our foolishness. But there are pain and there are problems. And it's not why I believe in Jesus. It's not why I think the Bible is true. But I think that He sees us in our pain. And I think He sees you. Second thing I want to say is not only does He see us, see those who hurt, He blesses those who trust uh, we'll look at this. You know, you can back up if, you, if you're quick with your fingers. But Genesis 15, remember the history. Then the Lord said to Abram, he had yet to have a new name and a new mission. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners, that strangers, vagabonds, in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God made a promise that they had forgotten. And I just want to say quickly, we learned this from Moses and the Israelites in this period of history. We've forgotten some things, or we've put words in God's mouth of things that He's promised us. And God has promised that He will, he will see those who hurt. He will bless those who trust. Now let me just say quickly, I'm a skeptic. I'm inherently skeptical. Any of y'all? Some of you have been in a small group, you know I've shared with you some of my journey, kind of when I went through a period of, of practical atheism myself. But I'm just inherently skeptical. I don't believe that aliens are in, a, are in field 51. I don't believe that a UFO landed in Roswell, New Mexico. I don't believe that Elvis was spotted at a drive through Burger King in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I don't believe the federal government will balance the budget in my lifetime. I do not believe that Morgan and Morgan are for the people. <laughs> I'm skeptical. Right? I've got some Thomas in me. But I can tell you stories. Again, God doesn't overpromise, but He promises. And we, we put words in God's mouth or we forget the promises that He's made. And God has been faithful to these people, even though it just seemed too long. Now, here's the thing. I'm a human, and I'm frail, and you are a human, and you are frail. So I cannot give a satisfactory illustration for all people at all times in all manners. But I want to share with you two quick ones about God sees you when you hurt, and he blesses those who trust. The other day, unbeknown, well, I should say, against my um, better judgment, I went through a McDonald's drive-thru. Okay? Where's Bob and Martha Pennebaker? They're the healthiest eaters in the church. They grow everything organically. I went to a McDonald's. I'm sorry for that, but I did. And I went through the drive-thru. Why? Because I wanted mediocre food really fast, right? And I special ordered. Why did I do that? Why did I do that? I should have known better. But I wanted a number three the way that I wanted it. And I pulled up and I paid. And because I, I mean, I threw them off. Now, here's what we know. God bless McDonald's, right? But man, they, are, they, they build food. They make food mass produced. That's their system, man. So just take a number, order that number, and go through, right? But if you, if you call for something special, they're going to say, pull up and what? And wait. And I'm in the car thinking, this would be a great place for a fast food establishment. And they come out and they bring the food. But you know what? On this day, it was just the way I wanted. And I would say, despite some clogged arteries, it was worth the wait. Right? And here's what I'm saying. Some of us, we want, I mean, if you want a life that's mass-produced... 
then you, you rush and you rush. But if you want what God has for you, if you want the special thing that He wants you, you to be and your life to be, then you will have to, at times, pull over and wait on Him. You get that? And the second example I'd use is just a puzzle. If you see a small child in the floor playing with a puzzle and there's a parent hovering around like parents do, that's why we get the name helicopter parents. And you see a kid struggling and they, there's the box and you know how that puzzle goes together, right? You know the 50 states. You know Idaho is not in the east. It's out west, kind of up high in the mountain region, right? You know that and you're tempted to get down and help them with that puzzle. But if you do, you've prevented them from learning mental dexterity, imagination, visualization, sequence and order and placement, right? You, you helped them in the moment. You didn't make them wait. You didn't make them wait at all. But you didn't help their development. And don't think that waiting on God is some passive thing. Waiting on God while you wait. He cares that you have good character, deep faith, and great wisdom. And those grow more times than not when we're having to wait on Him. We're having to wonder where He is. That's where it's forged. Write down James 5, 7-11. Read it later. A great example of being patient on the Lord and what He wants to do in our lives. One more before we close. God delivers those who wait. You know this one, don't you? We'll put it up and let's read it together. But they who wait for the Lord. Are you going to join me on this? Let's read it out loud together. Thank you. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The scripture says, those who wait for who? For the Lord. You see, in waiting, here's a problem as I thought about it and prayed about it this week. Here's a problem I would say in a sentence. It's, we have to be careful that what I'm waiting for becomes what I'm counting on. That it doesn't. Because often, that's the truth. What I'm waiting for becomes what I'm counting on. And sometimes, many times, that waiting, God is showing us that we can count on Him. We're going to close by coming to the table this morning. Everyone is invited to partake in the Lord's Supper in communion where Jesus says, This do you in remembrance of me. In Hebrews chapter 10, I don't know if we have this up. I added this late. If, we, if you have it, throw it up there. If not, I'll just reference it. But it talks about there are priests. Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 11 through 14, it says they're priests, and the priests are ministering daily over and over again, offering sacrifices for sin. But Jesus offered one sacrifice for our sin, and it says he sat down at the right hand of God. And it says that he's waiting. The one who will at times call you to wait, he himself is waiting. He's waiting, verse 13, waiting from that time until what? His enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. You see, there is evil, there is wrong in this world, and there's one who will make everything right, and that is our Savior, that is Jesus, a high priest who can relate to you and I. He's a high priest, but he knows our infirmities, he knows our weakness, he knows the pain of waiting, but here the scripture gives us a waiting that's going to be a good thing if your life is hidden with Christ. In God. Let's pray.
As we pray in a moment, you're going to be invited to uh, stand and we're going to sing. And you'll be directed to a place in front of you with bread representing the body of Christ and wine representing Christ's blood shed for you. And the scripture warns us not to do this in an unworthy manner. But it's Jesus himself who makes us worthy. So today, if you stand and if you approach the table in front of you, you'll be saying, Thank you, Christ. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for being seated at the right hand of God. And all my wrongdoing and all my sin, past, present, and future, it's on you. And the one who calls me in this world, who called a people to wait for over 400 years, is the one who himself is waiting waiting for enemies to be made his footstool. He's the one who's conquered death and gives us victory over our sin. God, I pray that we would give up on the, the trust in our own strength strategy. And I pray that we would lean on you. Lord, I pray over the next several weeks from our time in here, Lord, that we would open our thoughts to realize that the rain falls on the just and the unjust and that pain and problems come to us all. But there's a Savior who sees those who hurt, who blesses those who trust, and Lord, who is a deliverer for those who wait. Lord, receive our worship as we do this in remembrance of you. In Christ, amen.